This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by Parallel Prairies, stories of Manitoba speculative fiction, available at McNally Robinson Booksellers and wherever books are sold. Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. Hello, this is Super Bob Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. Uh, I'm here with two very special guests and one uh, mandatory attendee. I'm here too. <laughs> so Justin <laughs> Curry is here with us from Chasing Artwork, but also I'm afraid to get both of their names wrong, but they, I think I'll be okay. Darren Ridgely. That's right. And Adam Petrish. Correct. I've always wondered where to put the correct emphasis on your name. A lot of people anglicize it, so they just say Adam Petrash. Yeah. But traditionally, it's Petrosh. 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 Yeah. I am ready for this. Petrash is fine. No, Petrosh from now on. All right, so Adam and Darren are the uh, co-editors of Parallel Prairies. They're going to share their publishing journey, their editing journey, their story of making this book. I've always got to be the one to tell this story. Yes, right. you do, because you okay. tell it so well. Okay, fine. So uh, Adam and I are both uh, emerging writers. We've had some short fiction published, genre fiction published in, in journals, anthologies. We've, there was one prior to this that we had been in together. Uh, and as we started to make connections in the community and meet more creators, we just got this idea in our heads, well, what if we were to spearhead an anthology project where we could get all of the genre fiction writers who are working in Manitoba, or who are at least from Manitoba, together into one book. Can I interrupt you, as is my right as the podcast host? Sure. Okay. So um, I notice among many people in the writing community, they throw, they bandy this term around as if everyone would know it, but I feel like some of our dear listeners do not. So when you say emerging writer, you mean like you have a turtleneck sweater and in the morning <laughs> you pull it on over your head? Or, I feel or? like I'm going to get this very wrong, but basically I feel like emerging writer means that you, you, you've been published, you're starting out, you have a collection of credits, but not enough that you would um, consider, yourself consider yourself a prolific writer or you haven't landed a project that's large enough that I think would really put you... Uh, onto the public stage like if you I think that once you have a novel out that you've written and had published then you're an established writer but for me half a dozen short stories and journals between BC and the UK uh, I don't think enough people know who I am right now to say that I'm an established writer so but I'm sensing that you're equating I've hijacked your entire story to pin you down on this one point <laughs> that you're equating popularity or fame with somehow a rank in your ability to write. Do you show up every day at your writing desk? No. No. <laughs> okay. Do you work hard on your stories? Yes, I do. And you send them out for publication? I do. And you collect rejections? Yes. So you're a writer. I, you're right. And, and you're... You're right, and I see where you're going with this. This is like when people say they're an aspiring writer. Yeah, I want to slap um, it right out of their mouth, that word. <laughs> <laughs> and I've rejected that term as well, but I think maybe it's self-deprecating on my part, but I just I feel like saying I'm an established writer based on the body of work that I had prior to Parallel Prairies felt um, boastful. Why? I don't know. Who, who knows me? Who am who, I? It's not a boast. Most people think that writers are like scrounging for nickels in the gutter these days. Like you're not boasting to say like I write things. No, but I, I okay. 
I concede the point. <laughs> right. I surrender. I'm angry. I'm in, I'm in the hot seat. A great start. <laughs> On this episode of Super Pulp Science, we aggressively attack our guests, <laughs> hoping that they'll return one day. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. And uh, I am happy to have permission to stop saying emerging writer. I think yeah. you're here. You're a leader in the community. You... You oh, goodness sakes, don't call writers. me that. <laughs> look, look, there's a list, there's a there's a uh, table of contents here of people who have words in print because of your efforts. There's nothing emerging about that. I know, but maybe this is where I would have set the boundary. Maybe now I'm not emerging anymore. Oh, we're mm. here in the liminal zone on the podcast. That's, that's right. You I'm, have I'm emerged. traveling through the wormhole. I'm about to enter a whole new dimension. Oh, we're talking Gamma prior quadrant. to this project, right? Okay, so here we are. So now okay. you can continue with okay. your original so story. We, we just began with a very simple what if of what if we tried to get a collection of speculative fiction stories, short fiction that was by uh, authors who had connections to Manitoba and had Manitoba be the, the uh, bedrock of the whole thing. And we just pursued that. Let's try and get, um, let's try and get, gauge some interest in the community, let's put out a call for submissions, let's get a manuscript together, and we just kept hitting the next point in the journey, and I think that we were always prepared to hit the wall and go, oh, this part failed, oh, we didn't get enough submissions together for a book, oh, we weren't, or we haven't been able to land a publisher in any way, shape, or form, but we just kept moving forward, and we had interest from the beginning from Enfield and Wazenti, who has published the book, and they were very good to work with, and they were very patient with us as we got it together, and it just was a spitballing thing on, I think, Facebook Messenger back before Adam got off Facebook like a rational person. <laughs> That's um, true. And now here we are a couple years later. So, Adam? Yes. You nodded vehemently at some of those things. You cringed at my personal attack <laughs> earlier. Um, you can, call, uh, you can po- call bull crap on anything I've said up until now if you'd like. No, I, I would agree with you. I think that... Um, we consider ourselves writers, but our credibility within this community was still being established, We're making connections, making friends, mentors, peers, and growing that in, in that sense to... So you're next on the chopping block. What yeah. are your indicators of success then? Like what, how do you become a member of the community? Here you are in the community. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's success as much as just making connections, making friends, and just it's the long game, right? Yes. Meaning, like, I'm fans of people in this book. I'm fans of you guys, right? Just showing up to book launches, conventions, just supporting the community, right? Because you're a fan of it to begin with, and then it just grows from there. Justin, mm-hmm. as an emerging comic book creator, <laughs> <laughs> how do you feel about these labels? Yeah, I don't know. Because I don't, I don't call myself a comic book maker but you make comics make graphic novels or young adult graphic novels yeah but i i kind of see like where you guys were coming from a bit like i be i did a bit of sequential art and i'd done a bit of work but until i had like an actual physical book i was using kind of those like you know weak labels right and we all (laughs) feel like imposters in our own jobs but i want to i'm here sitting here feeling like uh, other people lately have said to me because of some projects like you've made it hooray 
that imposter syndrome does not go away. Like I'd agree. That, that project yeah, no, over, it, it, and now I'm like, what do I do next? It, I have no idea. 100%. It absolutely doesn't. Uh, but if I can jump in on a point that Adam made, there was uh, something he said about credibility in the community. And I think that that's the linchpin of the thinking as I saw it, where uh, what I didn't want to do as I made connections in this community was walk up to people who have novel trilogies and awards under their belt and say, hey, uh, you have all this, and I've written a 3,000-word story that got published in one journal. We're the same, right. and now we're colleagues. That yeah. felt very um, egotistical to me, yeah. and I just try to be realistic about where I'm at in my writing career versus where other people are at, and basically not try and be overly chummy with people who are um, doing more and accomplishing more than I am presently, just because it feels like I'm trying to be a hanger-on. So if I self-consciousness okay, thing, so I'll if admit. I uh, let me know if I'm mischaracterizing this, but I see that you're making the distinction between um, your personal and professional. Like you are equal as a person, yeah, but in a different place, yeah, along the creative journey. Right. That's just you didn't want to try I, to inflate your place. I don't want to be the guy who gives himself his own rap name. Right. Somebody, <laughs> somebody has to give you your rap name. You can't yeah. just call yourself whatever. And it's yeah. that way, I think, in the writing community. Other people have, I feel like uh, I'm happy to let other people acknowledge me, but not demand the acknowledgement of others. And I feel like by saying I'm an established writer because I've had a few things published, was doing that. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds. You're both writers. Yes. Yes. But yes, sir. <laughs> in this book, you took on a very different role. In Parallel Prairies, you were the editors. You were the tastemakers. You were the gatekeepers. You were those people that others despise in publishing. The <laughs> ones that choose whether it's right or wrong, good or bad. How did you make those choices? Totally ruthlessly. Really? Yeah. No. I'm, we're cutthroat. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to no, hear about... No. You don't have to name <clears throat> any names, but no. I want to hear about the emotional journey of reading a story knowing that it couldn't fit and what's that like i mean a lot of the stories that we rejected i would say weren't fully developed whether it was the characters um the plot and they were just missing something that we were looking for whether like darren and i agreed that yes they had to take place in manitoba but they kind of had to have this overall feeling or theme um, I, I mean, I, we have some that aren't necessarily set in Manitoba, but they, they have scenes that tie it to Manitoba. There are flashbacks or simulations that occur in Manitoba that, that tie it back to the province. Um, yes, it doesn't meet that criteria. Uh, is, it a, is it a polished story? Like, is it a complete story? Not all of them were. And is it a story that, um, most of the, in most cases, is it trying to say something? So did you guys discuss this rubric ahead of time? Yeah, what, the, what did the submission form look like, or the guidelines? The guidelines right. were pretty simple. Just yeah. write a genre fiction story, which we defined as fantasy, science fiction, horror, um, that was connected to the province of Manitoba in some way. Set in Manitoba, characters from Manitoba, or who have it in the past, or who use it, at, or Manitoba is, is an inspiration for the setting in some way. After that, we kind of let them run wild. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty broad. Yeah. You don't want to narrow it down too much because the more you narrow it down, the smaller your potential pool of submissions. And given that we already had the narrow scope of authors with ties to Manitoba writing speculative fiction, we didn't really want to winnow it down any more than that. Right. You know. Did you find, uh, or no, I guess the first question that comes to mind is how long was the submission process? Or like 
what was the window that people could know that this existed and then turn in a story? Six months. Um, was it that long for the open call? For the open call? Yeah, maybe. It was about six months. Now, did you have people in particular that you sought out or did you? We had a, there were people who we knew personally who we told about the project, um, a handful of people and, but for the most part, we just let it be an open call, and we just posted it to all of our social media every week to hammer it home, put it into groups that we're members of on social media that deal in genre fiction to try and get the message spread out. Uh, I mean, we didn't re- we didn't really directly solicit many people. Yeah, most people in the book actually came from that open call. Yeah. No. Oh. Amazing. Why didn't you guys put a story in? We do. Oh, you do. We okay, do. Yeah, both we of us do. We, we each have one. Show you. <laughs> so, um, long-time listeners to the podcast will know that Justin never knows what the episode is about before he arrives. I had no idea you guys were going to be here today. No, I just show up and react. And I just saw on the side that it was uh, edited by you guys, but I would have thought you would have had... I guess you wouldn't have wanted to put written there because then it almost seems like you did it all. The yeah. question yeah. is, is it a... Con- well, this is a, this is a reasonable question, I think, for people who are wondering about how to be involved this way. Is it a conflict of interest to be in your own edited collection? Yeah. I don't. And I who don't, cares? I don't think so. Um, I think that we, we meet the criteria. If, if we were doing a book of Manitoba speculative fiction and we both lived in Halifax and were born and raised in Halifax, then no, we shouldn't be in the book. But we are Manitoba writers. Well, and if our stories were terrible, we'd tell each other. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We, 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 re- we basically edited one another and before this ever went to a publisher and would have failed one another if we thought it was necessary. Now, ultimately, so as editors of the project, did you then also have someone overseeing you from the publisher who had a veto power on your choices? Yes, but they didn't. They didn't exercise it, but they couldn't. None of of the stories that we submitted as part of the manuscript got cut. They accepted every one. Excellent. Now, we had edits from there on as a part of their process because we, before submitting it to the publisher in the first place, went through a complete edit together. And then when they read the, read it, they had their own notes, which we dealt with. But they didn't cut anything. Hmm. Um, yeah, we were very fortunate that way. But that power of them to say, Adam, your story's out, still loomed. Darren, it, great story. It, it did. Staying in. It existed, yeah. And that I, wouldn't, was there. I wouldn't lie that I was a bit nervous. Really? Yeah, yeah just because I'm like... <clears throat> I have that imposter syndrome like you were talking about yeah. earlier. And I'm like, is the story good enough? Darren says it's good enough, but I don't know. Yeah. And like submitting it and be like, well, you know, it's comparing it to the other works that are really strong. Like I like my story, but like there's stronger work. I'm like, oh, is it going to get cut? If it does, okay, so be it. But Yeah. And, and it could be argued that of all the stories in the book, ours were the most likely to be cut because they would just say, hey, look, you're already going to be, be on the front of the book as the named editors. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be a, a knock to your ego in terms of the published product. If you don't have a story in it, nobody will ever know. So we're just going to lose these two, whether it was just for length or whatever. You know, right. we don't need to have this many stories. So one of you has to go. They could have done that. And it was more than likely that it would have happened to one of us. I mm. won't ask you to name it. But do you have a favorite story in the collection? No. No? actually. Mm -hmm. I think, I don't know if I would call it a favorite. I think that there's a story in there that I think really weds all of our themes together very nicely. Oh, it's like the the perfect Venn diagram overlap? Yeah, yeah, sort of. Um, 
and I, I've appreciated it for that. Whether or not it's the best story in the anthology, I'm not sure, but it definitely represented what we were going for on the project as well or better than any of them. Now that you're done, do you immediately want to do another one? Not immediately. Not immediately. Not immediately. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, we, we have discussed very loose ideas about what we would do in the future if we wanted to do it or if the opportunity arose, um, but we don't have anything concrete. We're, we're still getting through the, the promotional cycle for this one and trying to get people's attention drawn to this one as much as possible, and we'll, I don't know, figure it out down the line. Yeah. If we were to do another one, um, we've had discussions because it is the prairies opening it up to Saskatchewan and Alberta and doing right. a whole yeah. collective one as a secondary. That seems like edition. a natural extension. Yeah. 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 For sure. Um, do you find, so you had the launch. Yeah. We were in Vancouver. Vancouver I think. for the launch. I'm sorry that we weren't there, but I thought of it often. <laughs> we were in Vancouver. Um, you're at the launch, you have your authors reading the stories. Um, did all of them come out? Like, what was that experience like to s finally see all these things that were just submissions be actual people representative of the work? It, go ahead. For me, I was more of a fanboy than anything. So oh. I had my copy, and like, so anyone who had shown up, I was like, hey, can you, can you sign your story? Can you sign your story? Like, awesome. Thanks so much for being part of this. You know, kind of like that. Oh, nice. And yeah, we had four readers, um, and I think another six contributors come out. We had quite a few. We had quite a few. We have a few contributors who live uh, abroad right now. We have um, one who lives in Ottawa, another in Edmonton, uh, another who's studying in Newfoundland right now. So not everybody was able to make it. But we had, I think, everybody who's based in Winnipeg and even some from Brandon yep. show up, which was cool. It was like, this is what we were talking about. This is the community of people or, or a sample of the community of people. Uh, who are doing this kind of work. We know that we don't have everybody in this book by any measure. There are a lot of people who are doing this kind of work who uh, are out there and who we would love to see submissions from if we did another project like this. And um, But the idea was just to show people uh, a, uh, an example of all the people who are doing this kind of work just in this province. So we have 19 people, and that's not everybody, and that's kind of shows you how expansive it is so in my imagination the book launch is like the gang meeting in the opening of the warriors like all the different authors yeah it was a really good turnout i think we had something like 75 people i was counting heads and um we had our four readers and we did we hosted and did the introductions but then we invited up all the other contributors who didn't read and we had this huge long line so when people were signing their books they were just going from person to person to person that's yeah. awesome and it's a big autograph line but it's kind of like a it's kind of like a mass that keeps getting bigger and bigger what can you tell us about the experience that no one has asked you about something that you wish someone would dig down into boy i don't know yeah it, it, it to me to me something that I've spoken about in the past is to me this didn't feel um, that like that much of a departure from what I usually do. I'm an editor by trade. Uh, day by day, I'm the deputy editor for uh, community newspapers here in the city. So every day of my life is editing multiple publications with multiple writers and multiple personalities. That's life. And so Parallel Prairies was a very obviously a different kind of craft, but it's the same essential job of I have all of these people I have to go over everything they've written. I have to go back and forth with them in order to uh, fix anything I notice or, or make it better. And then we get the thing to press on time. 
and that was the book. Just expand instead of doing it week by week, it was a two year project. Yeah. So you leveraged what you're already good at. Into yeah, something it, that it, you... it was it was. Um, it felt very normal most of the time, for me anyway. Most of the time. When did it not feel normal? Well, just the crunch. We there's a difference between editing. Uh, something over the course of a week where you know what your deadline is and in the final push you know the thing is going to press on Thursday and you have Friday Saturday Sunday the previous week to do a line edit on the entire thing and that was probably the most stressful singular period for me was just that last push because it's like this is your last chance we're point of no return after this we got to make sure everything's as tidy as it's going to get I think every publication needs that though yeah. that last minute crunchy panic yeah have you found the <laughs> error every book contains an error or two have you found it yet I or even have, worse has somebody else pointed one don't want to look nobody's pointed out i've i've um oh they won't no and, no. and oh they no. some of them will. Some, well, <laughs> some there will. are stories some have <laughs> yeah, and yeah will eventually but uh i've seen some things just because i did a reading from my own book in the brandon story not errors but things that i might have tidied up a little more if i'd had one more chance but i think that that's just the way of it you always go back on your old work and go oh i could have done this i could have done that right. and this is why in some ways i think that it's healthy to just get it out and then not obsess over looking at it because you can't do anything about oh. it now it's out it's, it's, it's no longer ours the, the, yeah it's you, not yours anymore there, there's no anymore. fixing it so don't torture with yourself over the fact that it's you know off yeah everybody's name is spelled right the stories are all in the right order <laughs> on the table of contents we did the best that we could by all of our contributors and we think that the book turned out very well and it's finished and it's finished yeah well then let's finish our discussion with you as editors and talk now about you as writers i'm looking at your stories adam yep tell me about insectum insectum is all about uh, it's kind of a love letter to the White Shell Provincial Park and ants. Ants? Mm. Ants. And the White Shell. Why don't you describe for our international listeners the White Shell and why it is that you wanted to write a story I with ants and the White Shell? I spent most of my summers growing up in the White Shell in a cabin of sort or tents, and it's this beautiful forest with tons of lakes, so much to do, hiking trails, and it was just, for me, I really connect to it, so it was a good setting for my story. So you just pulled on your own experiences for the setting. Yeah. And what's the plot of the story? The uh, plot of the story is there's a couple who the gentleman inherits a rundown cabin, and it's more than it seems to be. Dun, dun, dun. Without giving it away. It's a short yeah. story, right? It's a short yeah. story. It's like only 2,500 words, so I'm like, how, how much can I give away? How can you give away, yeah. How long is the story? How many words? It's about 2,500. 2,500 words, yeah. So even 300 is a lot if you tell us that much about the story. <laughs> how about your own? Uh, mine is set in the rural community of Alonsa, Manitoba. I'm from a small town originally, not Alonsa. Um, but this, my story, A Fistful of Wool, is based on a paranormal experience my grandfather had out in Alonso. Um, my family on my mom's side has a lot of ghost stories. One of my great aunts saw apparitions in pretty much every house she lived in. And so there was a childhood memory of my grandfather's that he shared in his journal where him and his buddies were walking along the road in Alonso farm country and they see this black ram standing out in the ditch. And they go, oh, somebody's lost one of their animals. We're going to go corral it and 
keep it contained somehow and figure out who it belongs to. So they start chasing this thing down because they're little boys. They're not great at hurting animals. They just take off after it. And the ram runs away. And they chase it down the road, and it finds this old um, storage shed that was just sitting there abandoned with, you know, one door in, one door out. And it runs into the storage shed. They run in after it, ram gone. There's nowhere it could have gone. There's no window. There's no back door. There's just the one way in and out. They never saw it leave, and it's just gone when they get there. And so uh, him being a kid and my my great-grandmother being uh, an immigrant Roman Catholic with a lot of ideas about ghosts and spirits and things like that thinks well this was a spirit Mm -hmm. and so i took the this image of chasing this jet black ram through a field in the middle of the day and turn it into kind of a deal with the devil story uh my main character is a young woman who discovers that her sister has been injured and moved back in with home and she goes to find out what's going on and she discovers uh that her sister struck an infernal bargain as a child and that unless she can basically defeat the, a demon in a foot race, <laughs> she can't get free of it. Right. So she has to, because her sister can't fulfill the test, she has to take her place and run the race. So at what point in your life did you hear the story that your grandmother told and say, oh my gosh, I'm going to write a story about this? Uh, you know what? This story's been in the back of my mind for 15 years, but it wasn't really until three years ago that I thought about trying to do something with it. Right. So percolated for a long time. Did mm-hmm. your story come fully formed to you or did it percolate or how did you? The, uh, it, I feel like with both Darren and our stories, the, uh, although they're fiction, they're kind of based in truth, right? In our real life experiences. And I guess the, I guess the, reveal in my story was based on a true story that happened to me and my wife while we were actually out in our cabin. Hmm. Ooh. So. so did the stories, I have to ask, did the stories exist before the all call for the anthology or did you say, okay, now I have to write something new for our anthology? I was working on mine before the all call. But it wasn't finished. You had I wasn't finished it. Yeah. Yeah. I had the idea, but it wasn't fully formed yet. Yeah, so it gave you a finish line yeah. also. Yeah. I, I had about three or four stories in the mix, and it was a question of, okay, do I have anything in the works right now that would be good enough for this? And this was the one I picked. How important to you is, or how, how do I word this more succinctly? Do you think you could write a story like the ones you created without that personal connection? Could you be assigned it as a task and write with the same fervor as this, these stories um, with personal connections? I'm not sure that I'm following the example. So could I come up with a story without the prompt of a family memory? Yes. Like sure. Let's say you're thrown into the writer's room, right? And someone says, okay, here's your episode. Black Ram disappears. Go. I think that I could because... The, the prompt is one thing, but it's also about the meaning behind the story. Um, sometimes I'm not always aware of what I'm threading into a story until I've written it. There's a lot of subconscious stuff at play. Um, I'm a kid whose parents divorced when they were very young, and I have a little brother who I've looked out for historically, and my story is fundamentally about an older sibling who's trying to take care of a younger sibling after having failed to do it in the past. Mm-hmm. So... Maybe you can say, okay, black ram in the field, they got to duel with the devil, go. Cool, I can work with that, but it's about what, where the human connection is. Right. Because you never planned to write that. No. Yeah, it mm. just comes up. Yeah, right? I, yeah, yeah. I, I often I, say that writing should be, creation in general should be meditative, that you should pick something that you're trying to work on in yourself 
and keep that in your mind while you're working on this creative event so that some part of you is processing something that you find difficult to think about or face or you know overcome so that at least the act of creation is grinding that mill a little bit that's my two cents how about yourself I find that hard to relate to because all my stories have robots and <laughs> <laughs> but robots mean something they I do. think Why so, yeah. Robots? What's deep down? I don't know you? if I want Are you a guarded person? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Are you just so unfeeling and so manufactured? They all don't you... talk. Maybe I just wish people talked less. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> he says on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> on a podcast. <laughs> the value of passive silence. Yeah. <laughs> You're, it's literally called the Silent Guardian series. It's true. Yeah. Huh. I think maybe Darren should write the next one, though. The value of old stoicism. Yeah, people who just do their job but don't make a fuss about it. Yeah, <laughs> that is what our robots do in those stories. Wow, you've just told us what our next book is about. <laughs> Actually, Dragon Nanny is quite a bit about that exact thing—how you just labor without making a fuss because it's how life happens. Yeah, right. labor has its own value. Welcome to Altair Four, gentlemen. I am to transport you to the residence. It's a little bit about like just what comes most naturally and easily as well. Like I, I find, yeah, science fiction, post-apocalypse, like sci-fi kind of stuff, just easy to draw and write for. I think if somebody were to come with a like set in Manitoba with nothing really supernatural or, or anything going on, I would really struggle. So you could not and write Candlelit is what you're telling me. I think so, yeah. 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 Why? I don't know. Why is that? We have I mean, these, like why I could, all, why have this I have an I wouldn't arena enjoy in my it. heart too that I can only write within. Yeah. Why do we build these walls? I personally when I first started I was writing Canlit stories. But they were very dark. They were dark. I've they, read many yeah, of them. Yes. They they were dark. And I found that I've always been a fan of speculative fiction, whether it's movies, games, you name it. And I feel that speculative fiction is not like this safety zone, but like where you can explore these dark themes and people are more open to the idea of them. Mm -hmm. They don't project it back on you. Yeah. I find in Canlit, when you read something really dark, the audience often says, ooh, what's wrong with that author? Or what 100%. dark secret do yeah. they have? But if you have a science fiction monster, they go, ooh, that's interesting and scary. But yeah. science fiction monsters are never about the monsters, right? Exactly. The well, you and I know this because emotions, we right? write stories, right? Yeah. But to the to the reader, there's a weird, maybe necessary divide. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think it might depend on the reader. I think the people who are coming from the same place that you are will get it. Um, and maybe, but but there's no helping the fact that people who have no frame of reference for the problem you're describing won't get it. Which is where we get so many very popular fantasy and science fiction works throughout the ages that people just completely miss the central message of you know the idea that there are people in the world who don't understand that star wars is anti-imperialist right <laughs> or something like that yeah. because they just don't engage with art on that level right. it is pure entertainment and i guess i'll i'll say that i don't mind something being just for fun i think it's fine to write a fantasy Absolutely. story that's yeah. just yeah, for fun we have yeah. to have fun yeah um, but i can't seem to help but try to find something else to do with it I agreed, yeah. In Midnight City, there's a whole section of a story that is essentially on the surface. It's a horror story that's just for fun. Mm -hmm. That was me working through some horrible rumors about myself I was hearing in my workplace. Sure. And I just put them, I threaded them through this narrative sure. as a way of just saying, okay, well, I don't like that. I have to put it somewhere. So I'm going to put it in here. Mm -hmm. Right? 
Um, but most people are like, wow, this is the most, you know, the lightest of all your works. But for me, I was going, you know, I was putting mm -hmm. some heaviest stuff in there. By adding that into the process, like, does it help you come out better on the other side? I think so. I believe firmly in, uh, so Wilhelm Wundt was an early psychologist, like a foundational, I don't believe in all of his theories, but he was the first person to suggest that introspection is the foundation of self-discovery and of personal development. Right, And so it's not that you should always be seeking outwardly for new things. It's you should be overturning your own experiences and your own um, reactions to those experiences and seeking the patterns. Find the patterns in your own life because they are, they are going to happen again. And only when you're aware of them can you decide, this is a pattern I want to break. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so because life is busy and we often don't have time to just sit down every day and say, okay... I'm going to reflect on all the choices I've made. Yep. Instead, I've turned my art practice into a layer of that art practice is a, is a period of introspection. Every time I sit down, I say, what is a thing that I dislike, I do like, I'm afraid of, I'm ashamed of, I wish was better? I'm going to reflect on that while I work on this. And if some of that reflection comes out in the work, Great. I will not deny it. I will allow it to remain. You have a place to put it, whereas most yeah. people just have to look at it and analyze it. I think or cage it. Yeah, cage yeah. it. They yeah. don't look at it, or they go on an angry they Twitter rant, yeah. or they ignore it, or they vote badly, or you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever it is they do, they, they aren't looking at themselves as to the how and why. Well, and sure. Whether it's at the individual level or at the level of a society, uh, building any kind of better future requires an honest reckoning with the past. And if you don't do that, you will just do the same thing over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where did the cover come from? The cover was designed by Relish. Yeah, Relish. I feel like I always get their complete oh. name wrong. Relish New Experience? Sure. It's in um, The design firm. And yeah, the design it. firm. Yes. They, they are right over there. Yeah, yeah. We, could, yeah. we could throw stones at Relish, but oh, we won't. Relish, we like new Relish. brand experience. New brand experience. Yeah. They, did, uh, they do a lot of work with uh, Porter Germain Press as well. Yeah, because they share a building, right? Yeah, so. they, yeah they have a yeah. shared... Their floor is one floor is another ceiling. Oh. And I, I believe Great Plains Publications... Also uses them, yeah. Uses them. And huh. Yeah, they great. did a great job on the cover. Yeah, we were very happy cover. with it when we received it. Now, was this... Um, um, the publisher already had a pre-existing relationship where you sought out Relish to do the book design. Pre-existing relationship. Yeah. Right. The and did you guys hands off. art direct or no? No. They, okay. they no. did it all themselves and we just got an email saying, here's our draft cover. And we said, cool, we love it. Awesome. Yeah. And, well, that and, turned and up. the cover is based on the first story in the collection by oh, cool. SMBico. By SMBico. So oh. the, the bus, that's actually, we did not know that. No. This is a, uh, this is a weird coincidence that our operations manager and good pal, S.M. Biko, who was away um, last week in Halifax on a book tour and promotion, uh, slaying it, and helped arrange. I know she arranged you guys to come here, so maybe what you secretly hoped is that we'd promote her story more, but we didn't know it was in here. It's the first story. The Uncanny Road. Well, we're on the topic of covers. When I was starting out as an artist trying to get more freelance, I contacted publishing places like Great Plains Publications and said, I'm an illustrator, I'd like to do books, um, please put my name like kind of in your system. Here's my portfolio, if a book comes up that matches my style, like maybe I'm the one for you. And that's how I got my first couple uh, book projects. And I think that's something that a lot of, yeah, starting out illustrators forget about, that they don't have to find somebody to do the book with. They can go to the printer or the publisher and just 
kind of start at the end almost. Yeah, for so sure. I just wanted to throw I mean, that in there for anybody the who's an aspiring illustrator. Uh, Slap that word right out. I know. I, as soon as I said it. <laughs> Great Plains Publications put out another anthology previously by Keith Kedju. And I can't remember his name. Is that Shadow? Dustin Gearhart. Right. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, Shadow of Reportage in Maine. Yeah. And Keith had a artist in mind. And it turned out that Great Plains had already worked with this guy because of what you're talking okay. about. And so that's how they got their cover. Dun, dun, dun. So really, it is about everyone knows everyone. And so that's how you get published. Is that the yep. corollary of the story? Nepotism. nepotism, eh? We all at this table and in this room here know that it's so much more than just like we knew them. And so we could get their story in there. But do you find that that conversation gets tainted by I, new writers? I haven't had that conversation with anybody, to be honest. I haven't either yet. No. They're having it imagine, around you. I imagine it's going to come, but yeah. What I, I found yet. interesting is when I was first attending shows, um, and I would be at a publisher's table, and there would be an anthology collection, and I was like, "Oh, I want to submit to this anthology." If you stood around at one of these conventions, in the periphery around the table, the exiting conversations were very interesting. The way in which people would talk about how that collection occurred. The way people would talk about how that author got their job, the way people talk, there's this almost immediate sense where people want to devalue. I don't know if it's from jealousy or if it's from uh, just ignorance, but if people immediately want to devalue the actual labor of the writing and say, oh, well, of course they're published because X. I, I agree and I disagree because I get what you're saying. Like if people see like the connections or the mentors, the peers, the friends that we've made, people will be like, oh yeah, you just got all your friends, right? But Darren and I were very adamant on the work had to speak for itself, regardless of how published you were or if we were really good friends with you, like the work had to stand on its own. There are many people in this book who we never met before and who, and some who have never been published before, before this anthology. Wow. That's... Um, so this wasn't about just us getting all of our, our friends together. Yes, there were ha there are some people in the book who we knew, uh, some we knew better than others, some we just knew uh, from having gone to different events where they're also at. But there are people here who just sent in, and maybe right. we'd heard their name around, but we'd never met them or gone for a coffee with them or anything. But we read the story, and we liked it, and uh, we accepted it. And there were people who we knew of who submitted who we said no to, who it may have behooved us to let in because we knew that they had... Uh, credentials. Welcome, humans. I am ready for you. Did the business yeah. side of things, did you enjoy it? Or? The business side was pretty straightforward, except that we were had to be very conscious of the fact that we are, we were self-funding until we had a publisher. Right. Um, and we so were, you were looking paying down, for the stories ahead of time? That's yeah, right. We, we paid all out of pocket. Everybody was paid before, uh, well, everybody was paid shortly after the contract was signed which wasn't that long. I mean, I think it was less than a year from submitting to getting paid. So you had it, you had already agreed with each other that if you can't find a publisher, we're going to pay, pay everyone anyway. for their work. Yeah, and put it anyway. out ourselves. Um, yep. That makes you rare jewels in the publisher. Yeah, world. very. Yeah. Well, we had contracts with the writers long before we had one with the publisher. Because why should they have to sit there and let us hold on to it with no agreement and no money? in perpetuity while we shop around because yes. that's why indeed with, yeah. with, yes. a, with a traditional publisher it could take years yes you know so yeah that was important to us because we wanted to pay people for their work 
and we were going to shop it around to publishers and fortunately Great Plains picked it up but if they didn't we're like we'll put it on ourselves so I have to flip to the experience of as a first time right like the very first time I ever saw one of my own works in print what a like absolute thrill and affirmation that was to my own labors so you got to do that for other people have you had any feedback about that experience from those first-time writers? Some, some people who are first-time or who have maybe only been published one or two times before this were really thrilled, and we're glad that they were. We're glad that we could give them that experience. Uh, the important thing for us was to just uh, do right by their stories as well as we could, right, to, to, um, to present their stories as, as well and, as po- and in the most polished state that they could be because you know we're kind of the stewards of that work after they give it to us, right. and so the fact that the book is out and it's turned out very well, and that they can see their stuff in print, um, it feels good. So, is this a first publication, right, or uh, you own the copyright on these stories? Um, we did not hold on to any of the IP. Okay. We have first publication right. We have a period of exclusivity, but we're not holding on to it forever, and we don't. We don't have the right to do whatever we want with these stories going forward. It so, didn't feel right. Because we feel like yeah. IP should be with the authors. Yeah. So you paid up front, you had a contract, yes. and you allowed the authors to retain the rights of their own intellectual property. Correct. You guys are too nice. You're not going to last. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, please <laughs> work on more projects because the writing community that you're talking about wanting to be a part of needs more people like that. I mean, you balked at the idea of being presented as leaders in the community, but that action is uh, worthy of following. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it, it just do unto others, right? And, and I've, I I've personally have been a student of other podcasts that talk about uh, the creative industry uh, as it relates to comics and things like that. And we all know the horror stories of the old days of comics where people came up with an idea and they didn't hold on to the IP because it just wasn't done at the time. And now the things are making millions of dollars and where, where are the creators in all of this? Yeah. Um, so I've always been very aware of the fact that even if it is just a 3,000 word story, even if it is just getting it published in some journal uh, that's only released online, it doesn't matter. If the right person picks it up, if the right person reads the story and goes, I want to make a short film of this, or I want to buy the, the rights to this. Or I want to write a story I want too. The, I yeah. want those rights with me, Yeah. right? If that call ever comes. Because if I just sign it away thinking, ah, the story doesn't matter, this market isn't that big of a deal and nothing will come of it, that's how you end up watching your own movie and yeah. <laughs> and having, no having to buy a ticket it. to your own movie, right? Yeah, I've sat with a number of those comic creators and had that discussion about what is it like to see a multi-million dollar franchise, or in some cases, billion dollar franchise, where your yeah. name isn't even into the thank yous. Yeah, so whether it was dealing with our own work or, or being ambassadors for the story submitted to the anthology, to the publisher, you know, we have to uh, protect people's interests. Feeding off that, I think, because we we are creators ourselves, and although we were editors on this project, we're still writers at heart, and we didn't want to do a disservice to other writers. Right. Because we're like, how would we feel if we were put in that position? So we didn't want to go about it that way. Yeah. Sorry, we sold all of your IP rights away on your behalf. <laughs> yeah. yeah. P.S. Yeah. Paramount is interested. You might be, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> guess what? <I laughs> That's exciting. That's exciting, right? I I guess what? I bought a boat. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you about um, our fair city and the prairies in general 
and its relationship to the supernatural. There are a lot of writers in the prairies that seem certain <laughs> that the supernatural <laughs> is not just something to write about, but is all over this great land of ours. Did you run up against any of that, or what was your experience with that? Me first? Of course. I, I think that um, I come at it from the, the rural perspective, and... Uh, my, my my wife says, like, you have to just start calling yourself a Winnipegger. You've now been living in your, in Winnipeg for longer than you lived in your hometown. You're a Winnipegger now. And I resist that very right. fervently because it's where you grow up, right? An that's, emerging writer. That's what she... I'm and an I, emerging writer and I'm a country kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, where's my latte? No. Um, Can we so, have a small town off here for a second? Pilot Mound versus... Killarney. Killarney. Ha! Hey, Westman. Yeah. We're very, very close to each other. Really? Yeah. I remember getting off a Greyhound for a break on the way to Killarney and stopping at Pilot Mound, and just the only person who, who was from Pilot Mound on the bus just taking a drag at the, at, off a cigarette and me going, you stay in here for the holidays? And she goes, nah, I've done my time. <laughs> <laughs> and me just thinking, same, I know that feeling. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted no, you that's, again. That's okay. This is the um, theme of our podcast. So my 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 sense, says. as I mentioned before, there are a lot of people in in my family on that side that's from Manitoba that just kind of really was about the supernatural and the paranormal, and uh, you know, my family is religious in a way that's very palpable. Like religion isn't kind of like a community tradition where you just grew up going to church and you don't know why. Like there's they they believe in the spiritual as a pal palpable, powerful thing. Uh, not just they, uh, myself as well, but, you know, when you have this wide open space and you have all these really old farmhouses, it's just easy to believe that there's stuff going on in there. There's, it's easy to hear something that doesn't seem like it sh you should be hearing it when you're just walking through this barrenness at night. Right. Uh, and it's easy to walk through a town at three in the morning that's complete, completely dead and just think that there could be something on the rooftop anytime you look up because there's this lack of activity and you move to fill in the gaps in your own head. So I just have relatives who grew up in haunted houses their whole life and, and it's always just felt like a natural extension of the world for me. So far, the ghosts have murdered only seven people. So won't you come and make it eight? My upbringing was a little bit different. <clears throat> I mean, I'm a city boy. I moved here from Edmonton when I was five. Um, but we kind of left to our own devices in the 80s, right? Very much so. Very I much am so. also a child of the 80s. And yeah. just kind of making up stories and like you would play pretend, you know, this is like, there was only a Nintendo then, right? And I'd spend my summers out at the White Shell, as I mentioned, or, you know, my dad comes from, a, he's the oldest of seven farm boys out in Lake Vita Sundown, just south of Steinbach. And, you know, I'd be out on the farm and like he's saying, all these old barn houses and stuff. And you just play and create and pretend and... It always felt like a natural extension of... So you were a city boy that had access to the farm yeah. and had access yeah. to nature at the yeah. White Shell and all of these. Yeah, myself included. We lived in St. Germain just outside the city limits. So, you know, my misadventures in the city and my misadventures in the country were, you know, of equal measure. But what I always found interesting growing up was that people would project the human dangers into the city. Like... They were all still imagined, right? Like, be careful going downtown because someone's going to drag you up, section you in a bathtub, and then, you know, sell you for parts. Yeah. That's as imagined as, you know, there's a great spectral hound that runs the riverbank. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we just want to fill it up with something to be scared of. 
Is that what's going on? Well, we have very, we're the most comfortable generation of human beings to ever exist. We don't have problems. You go back two generations and you have people who live through famine and war, and it was a very natural thing where, oh, this is the army that's coming through the village today. Time yes. to get all the good cabbages together and hand it over so we don't get killed. Yeah, that was and, my and, and grandmother like, and great-grandmother's Yeah, yeah and I mean, yeah. that's that's where how my great-grandparents come to leave, the, leave for Canada. Um, but now we just don't have problems. Most of us live extremely safe lives. I mean, at least as far as, uh, you know, white people in Canada, we're yeah. like the safest, most comfortable people in the world. And it's almost like that we that thing in the matrix where people need to have problems to feel real right <laughs> so if we yeah, don't have problems we just we just invent them we just right. concoct them out of whole cloth um i think we have a similar shared i'd be interested off off the record to talk about our family histories and the flights from their original sure. places <laughs> into this uh into this country well, um i think we had a lot more freedom as kids like i'd get up in the morning take my bike and i'd be gone all day my parents wouldn't know where i was and i was just off exploring oh, yeah me too yeah, yeah. yeah. like well, even with my own kids now like i'd never do that yeah yeah it, it was well I, you know what i lived a part of my life on a base town where there was like a child abduction scare so i i spent like my grade two year um, being told like no we can't walk around outdoors but once we got to sleepy Killarney yeah just walk across town it takes you 15 minutes to right. do that uh, and then as a teenager just wandering around till four in the morning me and my buddies the only people in the whole world it felt like um, because the scare was all urban people were afraid of the city times a million because we were far enough away from Winnipeg that you just didn't go there I never went to Winnipeg for any reason except to pick up someone from the airport until I was 17 so it was like, oh, I'm going to New York City. <laughs> yeah. And that region around the airport does not engender. Yeah. No, yeah, it like doesn't I do Winnipeg no, justice. I have no conception no. of what like downtown Winnipeg looked like when I moved here. Yeah. Because you just never went there. Brandon was the city. If you had to get something from the city, you went to Brandon. But not Winnipeg. But not Winnipeg. Scary there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's where bad things happen. Yeah, my parents would say, you know, because I grew up again, I grew up outside the city limits. And like you were saying, you know, they would, I would be gone all day, say, on a Saturday. Yeah, on my bike, and the only warning, the only um, indicator of where I was is where they should look for me. We had sort of three regions, and I would <laughs> I, I would address that I will probably end up spending most of my time in this area, so that if they had to come look for the body, that's where they could check. But it was legitimately the conversation: don't mm -hmm. go by the riverbank because if you fall in, there's no one to help you. That mm -hmm. was pretty that much was it, a, right? I could climb the tallest tree, but don't go by the riverbank, right? I once heard this, like, it was kind of a, a fun fact thing that I really like. Um, the reason people like horror movies is because deep down, your brain wants to be scared so it knows how to deal with fear. And I think that's why, especially, like, in, like, quieter communities and towns, we make up all these, like, ghost stories and horror stories. Like, it's it's a, like, internal need to be afraid of something so we know how to handle it. So when something bad does happen, See, you're a like little more. That. I like that theoretically, but in the old country where they had plenty, well, they of things had it to already. Yeah. Of, yeah. So had, our brain doesn't have that anymore. So we have to like make it up ourselves. Oh, like you're saying, yeah. So theirs is traditional, whether where ours becomes like a media. Suddenly, like we we're not house. getting that real fear, oh, so we got to substitute it by. Do you think it's a lack of community, though? Also, that those stories grew up as regional sort of tales because people would stay in a place long enough that you could retell a story and define it and and kind of mull it over distill it into a great ghost story for a region sure but we move around so much now that 
we watch Netflix instead. Yeah, but let me let me put forward a, a thesis here, a hypothesis. Sorry, um, most of our understanding of like scary stories begins in childhood, right? We get told st- scary stories. We get told about the boogeyman. We get told about Baba Yaga, whatever. I think that maybe the horror genre and these ghost stories that we end up having as adults are extensions of these childhood ghost stories, which are basically designed to teach kids a danger sense and teach kids about danger before you break it to them that everyone's always at war with one another. Right, cautionary tales. Right, cautionary tales to prepare kids for a hard world. But now as adults, maybe it's because the problems have become too big for us to really process on an individual level so we come up with more distilled versions of the horror which are these stories because that's easier to understand than the fact that most of the things that we need to run the world and make it safe are completely out of our control right um it's like when you're a kid and someone you know like you're tickling a little kid uh the places that are ticklish are all the places that can kill you later that's where all of your <laughs> right, right? Well, Those yeah. Are, if you, you think about your, your where sides, you're ticklish as a your kid, armpits. you yeah. learn. That's the joint in the armor. You learn passively, <laughs> right? You learn passively to get good at yeah. defending those areas. Mm-hmm. That's uh, um, there's some evolutionary theory to suggest that's the purpose of ticklishness. Way to ruin tickling, Link. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're teaching a valuable life skill, right? Our, our, our grandkids are all going to be spear fighting over canned food, so they yeah. better learn to cover up those spots. Just just giving my grandson the bill to butcher. Speech. Yeah. That, that's a that's lethal. Wham. Yeah. That's a kill. That's, that's a, a kill. kill. That's a meme. That's a kill. That's, that's a, a kill. kill. Yeah. Well, this has been a kill. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for coming to talk about Parallel Prairies. Out now, everywhere. Would you like to plug where the best places to get it are? McNally's the best place to get it immediately, Good especially if you're close enough to get there. Uh, McNally Robertson Bookseller. They also yeah. have yep. a... Support local. Yeah, support local. But if you're listening from abroad, you can also get it from their website. Yep, yeah, their website. And you can order it at sort of the usual uh, massive conglomerate company booksellers. Amazon chapters. Fantastic. Yep. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, thank you. This has been Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made, why tickling exists, <laughs> and um, why you are no longer emerging. You have arrived. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Join the fight and make comics. Thanks.